Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to Invisible Arts with Richard Gibbs. Brought to you by Armory of Harmony. This episode is called The Conductor Effect. One day I was at an event and I met one of those life coach guys. You know, the guys that can tell you how to make your life better. Out of the blue, he asked me, what's your goal in life? I surprised myself with my answer. Immortality, I said. I kind of put him back on his heels a little bit. But then I went on to explain what I meant by that was I wanted to write music to create work that would last way beyond me. Music that is immortal. Speaking of immortality, I read somewhere that orchestral conductors live far longer than the average human. There are many theories as to why that might be. One is that the act of conducting is actually an aerobic exercise. And the typical conductor will conduct many hours a day. It's not just the performances that you see, but it's the rehearsals. It's maybe practicing at home. Or in the case of a film composer, it's the many hours in a recording studio conducting the orchestra. But that's a, that's a great heart exercise, doing that. So that's one reason. But I like to think the metaphysical is responsible for the longevity. When you're standing in front of an orchestra and you have 60, 80, 100 people all focused on you, and when I mean focused, I don't mean just with their eyes, but with their musical instruments, it's all aimed at you. That's an amazing feeling. All that energy goes right to the heart. There is nothing better for the soul than that. My introduction to the wonderful world of film scoring and orchestral recording 
came when I was hired by a composer named Craig Saffin to play keyboards and synthesizers. Craig hired me to work on a movie called The Last Starfighter. The Last Starfighter. My degree is classical composition, and I had studied film scoring in college, but it was really entirely an academic exercise for me. I didn't really understand what it was like on the ground on a scoring session. I show up on the date and meet the contractor. The contractor is the person on a recording session who basically wrangles, hires, takes care of the orchestra for the composer. The contractor for these sessions was a gentleman named Carl Fortina. Carl really did not suffer fools gladly, and I was clearly a fool when I showed up. I was green as green could be. I introduced myself to Carl as the orchestra was filing in to start the date. He handed me some forms to fill out. I said, oh, uh, do you have a pen or a pencil I can borrow? And he just looked at me like, you came to a scoring session and you didn't bring a pencil? He handed me a pencil with an attitude and sent me on my way. On the third day of the call, I showed up early, as I usually would do, to check out all my keyboards and make sure everything's working correctly. And Carl was in a more jovial mood and went over to the piano before anybody else showed up and proceeded to sit down at the piano backwards with the piano behind him and played Kitten on the Keys backwards. astonishing player in his own right. It was my first time meeting a lot of these these orchestral session players who are just straight up legends, just amazing players. I was in awe of the whole process. I was in awe of the players. We were at the old MGM scoring stage, this huge barn of a place. A stagehand will go over with one of those old big wall switches that looks like some kind of Frankenstein go, and all the stage lights would go off. The red recording light would go on over Craig's head, and there would be a huge screen at the back behind the orchestra with a work print of the movie playing. So while we're recording, we could see the scene as it's being recorded. The whole orchestra could see it if they just kind of craned around and looked at it. It was just pure magic. That was the moment that I fell in love with film scoring. I remember there was one particular cue that Craig had written to feature the flutes, and it was a pretty difficult part for them. And he'd also written it to be doubled by synthesizer. Now, I'd sequenced my part so I could step away from the keyboards and stand behind Craig while he conducted and while my computer did the hard work for me. The flautists were having a tough time. They kept missing it, and and Craig would have to start all over and record it again and again and getting it right. And I'm standing behind Craig watching this whole thing go down, and I started getting tired of standing, and there was a bass case behind me, one of those upright bass cases there made of fiberglass, which I now know. I didn't know at the time. And I'm kind of looking for a place to sit down, so I, I sit down on this bass case during the flute solely. And the flutes were finally getting it right, and it's all working great. And the bass case cracked under my weight. Just a loud fiberglass.
The whole orchestra stopped. Craig dropped his baton dramatically on the floor and turned around and glared at me. Carl Fortina gave me a look that could have killed Chuck Norris. I eventually became good friends with a lot of these players. Then along comes a movie called Sweetheart's Dance, and I'm hired as the composer. It was, a, it was a great break for me. A lot of composers choose not to conduct their own music, sometimes just because they aren't schooled as a conductor. Well, that never stopped me. I'm not really schooled as a conductor. I'd taken a class in it, but I would hardly call myself a great conductor. But then again, I knew most composers aren't great conductors. They don't usually like to conduct for that reason alone. Also because they prefer to be in the control room. You see, in the control room, you can truly hear what the orchestra is playing. You can hear every instrument clearly. But when you're conducting, you've got a click track going in your headphones, and you hear dialogue and sound effects, and sometimes the director comes in and talks right over on top of the tape. This is not really working for me. But I like to be out there with the guys, because these are my friends. I also found that I could work much faster that way if I wanted to change something. I didn't have to hit a talkback button and talk to the conductor and tell him, you know, the bassoon needs to be taken up an octave or whatever it might be. I could just do it on the spot. And it was just playing more fun. I like to have the whole orchestra play at the same time, which is kind of an old school way of working. With all the pressure of recording, it's important to keep things light. Now, when I first started conducting, I would have so much fun on the podium that I would get completely lost in my own scores. It was glorious. It was so, so amazing to hear people playing music that I had written. I, I, would, I would literally start dancing on the podium. I'm just moving around and having so much fun. And because I was a session player and had been doing this as a session player for so long, and because I knew so many of the guys in the orchestra, they were kind of in on it with me. And my sessions were known to be fun, even rowdy. Let's call them exuberant. There's a concept called emotional contagion. I love that phrase. And it means your emotions are picked up by those around you. Well, that's really amplified with an orchestra. You can hear it in the music playing behind here. is from a movie called Ladybugs. And my score was kind of out of control and pretty much over the top. But seriously, can't you just see me dancing on the podium right now, flapping my arms around like a madman? That was all fine until we got to this movie, Amos and Andrew. Amos and Andrew was kind of a um, perfect storm in a way in that it was a large orchestra. I had written for a 95-piece orchestra. One evening session, I added a 12-man choir on top of that, and they were standing behind me while I'm conducting the orchestra. So it was just a lot of people in a room tends to be noisy anyway. Then there were, when you have 95 of your friends in a room, then it's really noisy. And on top of that, this particular studio we were working in was called Todd A.O., it was very live. The room itself was just loud. And after the first couple days of recording, I was losing my voice from, from yelling over the orchestra. Not yelling like I was mad, but just yelling so I could be heard. After every take, they'd start telling jokes, and 
you, you know, a room full of 95 people making noise is hard to be heard over. I was going hoarse, and I, I had to put a stop to this. I had to figure something out. And so I came up with a, what I thought was the ultimate practical joke to play on all my friends, to play on the orchestra, and to, at the same time, solve my problem. And it was this. I wanted to hire another player, one more person, that nobody else knew, and fire him in front of the orchestra for being too rowdy, for being too loud, for talking too long, for talking too loud, and watch the whole orchestra just be shocked and go into silence. I decided that I wanted to hire a trombonist, and the leader of my trombone section was a, a very good friend named Ira Napis. We first met on a Simpsons session. I was the composer for the first season of The Simpsons. This is my former compatriot Danny Elfman's theme you're hearing. I got pulled in because one of the trombone players didn't show up at the last minute, and somebody knew that I lived right around the corner. I called up Ira after the second day of losing my voice on Amos and Andrew, and I asked him, Do you have somebody that we can hire that nobody in the orchestra knows? I will pay him myself. We won't do it through the union. It won't be on the books in any way, but I'll pay him cash on the side. And he has to be willing to be fired in front of the full orchestra, plus the director and the producer and the engineering staff and everybody else. And Ira laughed and said, I think I know a guy for that. It was one of his students. So he contacted the guy. The guy was game. He thought it would be great. And then Ira put me in touch with him, and I talked to him, and I gave him these instructions. I said, okay, you show up. We'll have a a book of music for you. You'll be one of the guys in this section. And by the way, he was thrilled to do this because he had never been on a professional recording session before. So even though he was getting fired, at least he was going to have that experience for, you know, an hour. So my instructions to him were to show up, play along, play the parts, And after the end of every take, I want you to talk just like everybody else does. Everybody always talks in between takes, and it's hard for me to hear. You be one of those guys. Just behave like everybody else is, but I'd like you to be 5% louder, just a little bit louder. And when I call for quiet, I want you to be the last guy that gets quiet. As the room starts to die down, I want your voice to be the last one that sticks out, even if it's just by a syllable. He said, okay, got it. And said, at some point during the, the morning session, I'm just going to stop the session cold. I'm going to look right at you and I'm going to say, you, yeah, you with the trombone and the bad jokes. Pack it up, get off my stage. And then I'm going to say, oh, it's okay, it's all right, take your sweet time. You've been wasting our time all morning. Why, why, why should it be any different now? We'll, we'll wait so we can get back to work. And as you sheepishly depart, I'm going to turn to the contractor and say, John, I never want to see that guy on the scoring stage again. In my my mind's eye, as soon as the door shut behind him, there would just be silence in the room. And everybody would be shocked and he would behave for the rest of the session. Now, I was thinking that probably at the end of that day, or maybe I'd wait till after all the sessions were over a day or two later, that I would confess to the orchestra what I'd done, this practical joke I'd pulled on them to get them to be quiet. But it wasn't to be. Here's what actually happened. This kid shows up. 
He does exactly like I asked. But I realized, I got there early, and I realized that it was going to be a problem because everybody knew me. They knew I'm generally very easygoing and laid back. And if I just suddenly fire somebody, like, you know, the men in the white coats are going to come for me. They're going to think I've completely flipped my lid. So I decided to put myself in a bad mood to pretend that I'm in a bad mood at least. While, I'm, while the orchestra's warming up and everybody's there, I needed to give it some context. I needed for it to, to feel like when I fired somebody that they got it, so, well, that was really radical that Richard did that, but I can see he's having a tough day. So I told myself a story as I'm standing at the podium and looking at the music, getting ready, and the orchestra's still finding their chairs and warming up. I told myself a story that my dog had been hit by a car that morning, and I was really, really sad because of it. That's just a story I told myself. I I wasn't going to say this to the orchestra, but it was in order for me to get the right mindset. And when people were sitting down and coming up and saying, hey, Richard, how's it going? I would just be much more um, low-key than I normally would be. I would just say, oh, fine, yeah, thanks for being here, like that. And just, I, I wouldn't look up and make eye contact with people. I was just reviewing what we're going to do for the day. And the session started. And I'm inside, I was brimming. I was so excited that I was going to be able to pull the stunt on everybody. We finished the first take. And there was dead silence. The whole orchestra was completely quiet. They were church mice. You could hear a chair squeak. This poor student was looking at me like, what do I do? And I just, I, just, I kind of, you know, I dared to steal a glance. I'm like, just don't worry. Don't worry. We kept going through the morning, working on all these cues, and I just figured sooner or later they'll start getting rowdy again, but they never did. I started becoming suspicious of Ira or the contractor that maybe they had spilled the beans what I was up to. I found out later that wasn't the case, not at all. The orchestra stayed silent. After every take, they were perfect. They sat upright in their chairs and just looked at me for further instruction when we went to the next queue. And this poor kid kept looking at me like, what, what do you want me to do? And I just kind of indicated, just, like, just keep rolling, just keep going. We'll figure it out. And finally, after the three hours of this, at lunchtime, I just paid him cash and said, just go home. I never, I never, I never got to pull the trick. I never did the stunt. I, I remember some kind of an awkward moment when he left and the other trombone player sitting in a section looked at me like, what was that about? Well, the fun of this is, I realized, of course, later that I was trying to teach the orchestra a lesson and instead they taught me a lesson and they weren't even doing it consciously. I realized that the whole problem with the sessions, the whole problem with the behavior of the orchestra was that they were reflecting me. I was the one causing these problems. It was me that was making the orchestra rowdy. It was all my fault, but I didn't know it at the time. Emotional contagion. But I have a better name for it. Let's call it the conductor effect. And I think we all know, we all have the power of the conductor. We can all influence those around us by our mood, by our demeanor, by our expressions. People often wonder, what does a conductor really do with an orchestra? 
What are they doing standing up there flapping their arms around? Well, I encourage you all, listen and watch. Leonard Bernstein conducts Haydn with his face. Just Google that. Leonard Bernstein conducts with his face. Haydn. Google it. You'll see a master conductor at work. A guy who can control an orchestra just with the movement of an eyebrow, with a smile, with a quick grimace. It's masterful. That's the conductor effect. this, wouldn't it be great to have the same emotional impact on people across space and time? People on the other side of the globe, 50 years in the future. That's the ultimate conductor effect. There was an incredibly prolific composer named Georges Delarue. I never had the pleasure of meeting the gentleman, He scored over 350 movies and television shows. What you're hearing now in the background was his score to a movie called Rich in Love. George finished the last day of recording this beautiful score, and as he conducted the last note of the last cue on the last day, he put his head down and collapsed on the podium and died of a heart attack. It was traumatic for everybody in the orchestra, and I'm sure doubly so for his wife, who was in the control room at the time. That's how I would like to go. Talk about dying with your boots on. His music was still reverberating on the stage as he left this earth. What a beautiful way to go. He is now immortal. Invisible Arts is produced at Woodshed Recording in Malibu, California. I'm Craig Saffin. Nissan has been committed to the EV game since 1947. Their EVs have traveled 8 billion miles. 8 billion miles driven by Leaf owners globally since 2010. From the North Pole to the Formula E track to your co-worker's garage. Put the electric in EV with the Nissan Aria and the Nissan Leaf. Visit NissanUSA.com to learn more. Nissan. EVs that electrify. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.